I'm, uh, I'm very frequently singing while I'm walking up, and my greatest fear is that my mic would turn on and y'all would hear me singing and you'd all leave the well, all right? Uh, so how are we? Good, good, good. Are y'all ready to willingly practice the sin of gluttony later this week? What? <laughs> y'all are like, don't be ruining my mac and cheese, dog, all right? Or if you came from that family, don't be ruining my green bean casserole, all right? So, all right, we playing like we ain't got a lot to cover. You ready? If you have your Bibles, grab them. We're continuing in Jonah. We'll be in Jonah chapter 2 today. Uh, if you uh, have your phone, you can pull those out and feel free to follow along in that way. Uh, the notes and stuff will be on the screen of how to uh, get to the right link or the right sites. If you have the Bible app, you can use that. Um, if you would need a Bible, if you would actually raise your hand, the ushers will be coming forward and they would love to give you a Bible. Uh, if you physically don't own one, you can raise your hand and uh, take and keep that as our gift. Uh, we want you to have the word, to be able to uh, use it during the week. Turn in there, Jonah chapter 2, okay? Um, and so uh, we're going to dive right in as you're turning there, Jonah chapter 2. Last week we left off with my man's Jonah getting tossed off of a boat. Like literally he was thrown off the boat and then we just left him there, all right? And so Jonah's kind of floating in the air right now in our story. Uh, but Jonah was told by God to go preach to Nineveh uh, and he was like, nah fam, you good, all right? And then God caused winds and sailors and lots and storms to be like, no, go do what I told you to do, okay? And so it's very similar this week. I told my daughter, Kyria, uh, hey, will you uh, get that water bottle and put it out front? She looked at the water bottle and then just walked away and went and sat on the couch. And I was like, what? And so I went and I grabbed her and I put her back in front of the water bottle. And I said, if you would still like to be in the male family lineage, then take that water bottle and put it there. Okay. So God kind of goes and he picks up Jonah and he says, no, 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 you're going to do what I told you to do. Okay. Because God is, and so God is picking up. And I was at that moment when Kyria utterly disrespected me. Okay. And so God is picking up Jonah. He's getting Jonah's attention. So Jonah gets thrown overboard. Uh, God has caused all of this to happen because he's doing a work in the heart of the prophet. And that's where we actually pick up today. So uh, Jonah, uh, I said chapter 2, but we're actually going to do chapter 1, verse 17, uh, the last verse of chapter 1. It says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. A couple of things about this before we dive into the text. First of all, if you've never heard this story before, you might be like, hold on, what? Yes, you read that, okay, right, okay? And I know that today uh, in our world, uh, that may kind of spark an immediate skepticism or maybe even a disbelief in this story at large. All of a sudden, I'm gonna make here, uh, first of all, to a fictional story to us because of this, and a couple of points I wanna make here. Uh, first of all, if you start off with the understanding that miracles never occur, uh, then of course, it naturally follows that Jonah Jonah could not have been swallowed by a fish or a whale and then lived in the belly of it or the mouth of it for three days. Of course, that couldn't happen because miracles can't happen. But then, friend, I would say to you, you actually can't be a Christian because our very faith is defined by a miracle. 
We just sang songs to a guy that said he was dead for three days and then resurrected from the dead and now lives in eternity with God. That is, by definition, a miracle. And so we, as believers, actually believe in the miraculous. Now, the word miracle denotes that it doesn't happen often. Like, if you guys go jump into the middle of the Atlantic, you're not going to live by a whale. You're going to die and see Jesus, okay? And so miracle doesn't mean, oh, this is normal. It, by its very definition, uh, denotes that it is rare. In fact, God has to be the one doing it. But we are a people that believe in more than just the natural that is here in front of us. In fact, we believe that there's something even greater than the natural, the supernatural by which we will all be going to uh, one day. And so we believe in a miracle. So we actually believe that this happened because we believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead and that God can do miracles. And so my immediate encouragement to you would be to wrestle just because you haven't seen it. Does that mean that it cannot exist? That's what often happens, but you also do not see the resurrection of Jesus. You have to trust that other people, 500 eyewitnesses saw it to be able to believe in this. There's historicity here. We don't shut our brains off by any means, but we also know that there's more than just what meets the eye. And so we see the reality of this here, right? This is uh, an important piece here. In fact, if you are a Christian, then your very salvation is a miracle of God, because you wanted nothing to do with God, and then God at some point wooed your heart to himself and turned you into a Jesus lover. That's a miracle in and of itself. So we know that we can't jump in a fish and live, which is why God has to do it, which is why it says God appointed a fish. It's God's hand that's here working this out. God is the one that is active. Just like you can't save yourself, so God appoints you. And so this is in son for you. And so God is in the miracle working business. And so this is important that we begin to realize our faith does have the miraculous in it. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. We can walk in the reality of this. And what you see here is the author isn't really even focusing on the fish at all. There's literally two verses denoted to it. In fact, there's more verses about a worm later in chapter four than there is about a fish here. And so God isn't, or the author isn't really focusing on this. He doesn't use this to heighten the dramatic quality of the story. He's not trying to woo us and trying to be like, whoa, look at this. He's actually trying to turn our attention off of the fish. And so why even put it in unless this is what actually happened? The author believes that, man, this is what actually happened here. And so it's not necessary, but they include it because they're showing God's sovereignty in the midst of Jonah's life. We are a people who believe in the miraculous. In fact, I won't go into all the details because the details are way too long to go into. My granny came. I was telling my community group guys this this week. I had cancer. My granny came. I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair for three months. They finally found out what it was. She came, she prayed over me and said, hey, God told me that you're gonna be a pastor and so you will be healed from this. And I wasn't even a believer at the time, okay? And so she prayed over me. The next day, I was walking. I hadn't walked in three months. And in irony, I didn't even remember that she said that to me until about five years later after I got saved, felt called into ministry, told my granny and she was like, yeah, don't you remember when I told you that? Oh yeah, you did say that, right? In fact, it was so miraculous that the spot where the cancer was actually not just disappeared out of my body, but it physically literally disappeared off the x-ray. 
Now either I'm sitting here bull-faced lying to you, or I'm here because of a miracle. God is a miracle-working God. And so what happens, even in that story that I just shared, just as it does here with Jonah, is that if we focus too much on the of God who interacts with on the cancer, then we miss the reality of the massive nature of God who interacts with his people. You see, the author doesn't want our eyes on the fish. He wants our eyes on God. The true miracle is happening not in the belly of the fish, but in the heart of the prophet Jonah. That's where the miracle is happening because we don't believe our hearts are as dark as Scripture actually says they are. It is uh, way harder. We neglect to see the miracle that God is not just miraculously sustaining Jonah's life. He's miraculously changing Jonah's heart. And he's doing this work in the process. And so it's harder to change a human's heart than it is to sustain a human's body. Just ask Jesus, is it easier for me to heal or say your sins are forgiven? Way harder on that way. But just so you know that I'm God, your body's healed too. It's way harder to change your heart. That's what the author wants us to see here. And so put your eyes on the fish and you miss the beauty of God. Put your eyes on God and you may begin to believe, man, this dude can sustain me even through a whale. And so we want our eyes on God this morning. Jonah, he's swept up by the fish now. And notice the importance here. This is actually the first time that Jonah prays. So if you were here with us last week, the dude didn't ask God if he could not go to Nineveh or whether or not he should go somewhere else. The dude did not pray about getting on the boat. He did not pray that the storm would stop. He didn't pray for the sailors. He didn't even pray for himself before being hurled off the boat. In fact, he did this for Jonah to hit the water, as we'll see here in a second. It took all of this for Jonah to finally pray to God be sure to uh, uh, not allow the only times you seek God in prayer is to be in moments of sheer distress, family. Is that the only time you seek God? Truly seek his face. Come on now, amen? amen. Tell your soul amen, it's okay. In fact, look at your neighbor and say, don't wait until you're inside of a fish to pray. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, ooh, I like that. <laughs> My Presbyterian friends are like, what was happening here, okay? <laughs> All right, so uh, don't wait until you're on the brink of death to finally reach out to God for salvation, family. Don't wait for it. Okay, now listen, at the same time, when you are in moments of sheer distress, then make sure that it is God who you are calling out to. You tracking with that? And so uh, when uh, you're in the moments, man, then go to God. Don't wait to go to God, but when you're in the moments, make sure you're crying out to God or else you won't find salvation anywhere else, family. And so we have to realize what's happening here. Even if you haven't sought God in a while, listen to me, God will listen to you. Even if you have not sought him, just because Jonah decided to control his life up to this point, when he finally did reach out to God, God was willing and ready to listen. And this is true in our life too. So Christian who is struggling in their faith, maybe used your first time in church today in a long time, maybe you're a person who feels far from God, maybe you are not a believer and therefore have never really had the ear of God, wherever you may be, if God can hear Jonah in the belly of a fish in utter rebellion against his will, then God can hear you too, family. Are you seeking him? Are you going to him? He wants to listen to you. God hears the cries of his people 
and he will call you back to himself. And as he calls you back to himself, he will allow you to come in because our God is always the father God who always embraces his children. Now, you may be like the prodigal son. You may be coming back broke and smelling like pig mud, right, and dirty, You may be coming back smelling like whale guts, all right? I'm not saying it's easy to come back to God. Those moments may be very, very difficult. In fact, they may have sharp uh, distinction in your life where you remember them because we do face the consequences of our sin at times, and yet, even when we're in our sin, God allows us to come back to him. He is always the Father who embraces us. Even in the midst of our rebellion, God is a faithful God. So we see here, God is ready and willing to hear Jonah. He will answer. God is willing and ready to hear you, brother, sister, and the faith. God is willing and ready. Are you going to him? Are you seeking him? Are you still trying to sustain yourself? That's what Jonah is doing here. So let's keep reading. I'm going to read verse 1 again. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. So Jonah actually gives a recap of his prayer in verse 2. That's actually very familiar in Hebrew poetry. What he's about to write is a poetic prayer here. And usually in Hebrew poetry, it will give you uh, the summary in the first sentence, and then it will actually explain what happened from there on out. So the summary is verse 2. So let's read what actually happened here, verses 3 through 7. It says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me. Think about what he's saying here. I'm starting to drown, right? The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the, at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, like this dude was suffocating and dying, he was drowning, literally. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Notice several things here. First of all, Jonah realizes that it was God who threw him into the sea. Now, yes, the sailors physically were the ones that did it, but God in his sovereignty forced this, in a sense. And so just as Jonah's flight to Tarshish was halted by divine sovereignty, God's will stepping into Jonah's life. So again, God is executing divine sovereignty to throw him into the sea, and God is executing his sovereignty to appoint a whale as he's being thrown in the sea to know that Jonah would seek God in prayer and to swoop Jonah up and save his life. God is sovereign over all of Jonah's events here. That's what Jonah is acknowledging. In other words, God is responsible for Jonah's rescue. Jonah, if left to himself, would have destroyed himself. And yet God steps in, and the same is true for us. If left to ourselves, we will destroy ourselves. Yet God, says, being rich in mercy, God wants to step into our life. Notice, too, that we can actually think this fish was God's judgment on Jonah, but in reality, the fish was actually God's grace. 
See, if there was no fish, Jonah would have drowned. And so the water was God's judgment, not the fish. So sometimes what can feel like God's punishment towards you may actually be God's grace over you, delivering you from yourself. It's important. Don't be so quick to call what seems bad, bad. It may not be. Sometimes it might be dark and smelly, but it might be God's very way of saving your soul, family. And so it can be easy to realize, like Jonah, to be frustrated, but in reality, God was swooping in to deliver him. The storms and the seas were what Jonah actually deserved. The fish was God's grace in Jonah's life. The winds and the waves should have uh, actually drowned Jonah and destroyed him for his rebellion against a holy and perfect God, and yet God, despite Jonah's rebellion, acts in Jonah's deliverance anyway. He's a gracious God who longs to forgive. Notice the progression here too. Jonah hits the water, and then he starts to sink a little bit, and then the weeds get wrapped around him, it says, and then it drags him down to the bottom, and he realizes he's sinking, sinking, sinking. In fact, people believe that Sheol, which is a word for hell, was actually underneath the sea, and so Jonah believes that he's not even really in God's grace, so much so that he's going to go to hell, and he's never going to see light again, and is dragging him down is what Jonah is confessing about this here. This is important because we realize there was a lot of struggle here. Like in children's books that you read about Jonah, it's like he gets thrown off the boat and kind of thrown into the whale's mouth like he dives in with like Olympic-like precision, right? That's not what happened here though. He's struggling and he's drowning. God allows him to feel his need a little bit to face the consequences of his sin some. Don't miss it, right? God does the same with us. However, we often get mad at God for this. Like, think about that. This is of our sin, and what happens is we sin against God, and then we feel the consequences of our sin, and then we get mad at God for the consequences of our sin rather than getting mad at ourselves for sinning in the first place. Like, we can be unlike Jonah here. Jonah realized God's sovereignty, that he deserved death, and yet got life anyway. But we sometimes are so entitled. We are entitled to God's grace that we sin against God. And then when we feel a little bit of those consequences, we get mad at God like it's his fault. We can't do that, family. God sometimes will allow you to feel the consequences of your sin because he loves you enough to allow you to suffer some so that you won't go into that sin anymore because he knows that sin will ultimately destroy you. God is sovereignly acting in Jonah's life here. He allows the consequences of his sin to turn him towards God. Important question. Do you allow the consequences of your sin to turn you toward God or away from God? And you'll never find salvation. Do you allow them to turn you away from God? You'll never seek God in prayer like Jonah did, and you'll never find salvation. You have to allow the consequences of your sin to turn you towards God. You see, Adam was the one who sinned and then tried to hide from God, but God called Adam out of hiding to himself. John 3, 1 John 1, all says when we sin, we got to come into the light in this. And so Jonah knows that God is a merciful God, that if he looks to the temple, if he seeks God's face, then God will turn his ear and hear. Jonah knows God's graciousness here, and he banks on God's graciousness rather than trying to save and deliver himself. 
I think that if we try to deliver ourselves, we will not find salvation, family. It's only when we allow the waves to draw us back to God will we find God's grace the way that God has intended. And so don't get mad at the consequences of your sin. You're the one that sinned in the first place. But be thankful that the grace of God will meet you even as you're drowning, and he will deliver you. That's the promise he gives to us. Not that we won't feel the pain, but that we will feel deliverance if we turn our faces towards God. God may be, in those consequences, making you dependent on him. And so thank him that it may be ridding you of yourself and bringing you more into Christ-likeness. Notice that Jonah is not just turning back to prayer here either, but he's also turning back to God's word. You see, what Jonah does is he quotes a bunch of psalms in uh, 3 through 7, and in reality, he's kind of quoting these different variations of the psalms because Jonah actually knew the word of the Lord. So in Jonah chapter 1, he turned from the living voice of God, but in Jonah chapter 2, he turns back to the living word of God because the word of God is the voice of God, and Jonah realizes this. He turns back to God's voice again through the scriptures. So what you see throughout this is that even though God isn't directly speaking, God is still very, very active in Jonah's life. So just because, family, you don't hear God's voice in your heart doesn't mean that he isn't active in your life. God may be active in your life, doing something to try to draw you to himself. He may be appointing your deliverance right now and trying to free you from that. He may be working your growth and your sanctification or maybe trying to work your joy or maybe allowing the suffering to turn into greater joy in the long run. He is in control. You have to allow your hearts to remember this. You have to trust that God is good, specifically when you're sitting in the belly of a fish. That God is sovereign. God is a pursuing God. He will pursue you. Despite Jonah's sin, he is still pursuing him. God is still faithful. Despite your sin, God is still pursuing you. He is still faithful. He's not rejecting you. He wants you in intimacy with himself. If you but turn to him in prayer, are you turning toward God or away from God? This is an important question. And Jonah, he actually does the right thing here to turn towards God. Let's finish our section, verse 8. It says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. I've been vomited on by my daughters before. I've never been vomited out of something. That has got to be awful, okay? What we get here, though, is that Jonah finally gets it, in a sense, right? Jonah's praying to God. Jonah proclaims that this God is the God who will save. In fact, if you look at verse 9, he actually does the exact same thing that the sailors do in chapter 1, verse 16. You see, he thanks God, he proclaims and offers a sacrifice to God, and he makes vows to God, just like the sailors, if you go to that slide, there's a table chart there, just like the sailors 
killers, right, they did the exact same thing. They feared or saw God for who he was. They began to offer sacrifices. Then they made vows to God. And we said last week, the sailors were delivered. They were saved. They stopped using the generic name of God, Elohim, and they started using the covenant name of God, Yahweh, to show they have relationship with God. There's intimacy here now. Jonah is doing the same thing. And yet... Jonah doesn't really get it. You see, if you're familiar with the story, in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah was actually worse in chapter 4 than he was in chapter 1. And last week, all we did was dog my man, right? What you're going to see in two weeks is Jonah throwing the biggest adult temper tantrum in all of the Bible, Okay, like Jonah, he doesn't really connect in a way. You'll see that he has absolutely no compassion. He has absolutely no grace. He has absolutely no love toward others, which the scriptures say, if you love God, you will love your brother. You will love others. It is natural because if you love God, you'll start to look like God and God so loves the world. But Jonah does not look like God. He's not loving other people. Jonah is a terrible character in chapter four. In fact, the very thing that he proclaims in verse nine, salvation belongs to the Lord, is the very thing that he's going to get mad at just a few verses later because God is about to deliver all the Ninevites and Jonah gets angry at it exceedingly angry. In fact, even in this prayer, you can kind of see signs of Jonah not getting it, y'all. Like, do you realize there's absolutely no repentance in this prayer? There was no like, dag, my bad, God. I was tripping, yo, thank you, right? There's none of that, okay? Like, I'm a fool, I ran away, please forgive me, that doesn't happen. If you look at the pronouns, Jonah talks about himself 24 times, talks about the Lord 12 times. So he's doubly talking about himself than God. That's not usually what himself here. None of what is common throughout scripture when people truly see God is actually present here in this prayer. In fact, in verse eight, Jonah is saying that those who worship idols have absolutely no hope at steadfast or covenantal love. They have no hope for a relationship with God is what Jonah is proclaimed. Jonah is still thinking about the foolishness of the pagans, even when he's in the belly of a fish, y'all, he's still thinking about other people, how they can't have intimacy with God because they're forsaking it, worshiping false God, completely missing the clear idols in his own life of nationalism and racism still, of selfishness, of judgmentalism, of the idol of comfort, of the idol of Jonah's own pride. He's totally missing all of his own idols, still looking to someone else, proclaiming, I have the love of God because I'm a Hebrew, but they do not have the love of God. He's still missing the points. And even though he gets it, he kind of doesn't get it at all. And chapter four is going to expose that to us, that Jonah does not really get it here. And so what in the world are we supposed to do with this prayer and with this prophet then? Like if that's the reality, what are we to do with this? Is this prayer fake? Like has his heart not truly changed? How should our attitudes be toward this foolish prophet here? I would argue that rather than being frustrated at Jonah's prayer, that how it's very wordy and yet lacks true change, that we should be encouraged by multiple things here. Firstly, Jonah is not a flat character, but he's a dynamic character that goes through ups and downs throughout his story. Y'all tracking with that? 
right? Like, like Jonah is not awful, and then he believes God, and then he turns to awesome. That's not what happens. Jonah goes up and down, right? And so this is how you actually know the Bible is not made up. Not because of whales eating people, but because the Bible doesn't really have any heroes, complex characters that the Bible shows the rest of the people of God being these complex characters that go through ups and downs, even after believing in God, still have all these struggles with God and who he is and all of this turmoil in their own soul. There's no fairy tale characters in the Bible. Jonah, like us, is complex. He doesn't really get it, even though he does kind of get it. He understands God's grace. He sees God's deliverance, yet he doesn't see how that can transfer to other people yet. He's missing the true character of God. He's kind of in and out of good and bad. He's probably here trying to interact with God. Maybe there's a true spiritual connection here even. He feels the presence of God, and yet he doesn't fully transform him the way that God would want him to be transformed, which is why God keeps working on his heart in chapter 4. He knows that there's not full transformation here. We too, family of God, are complex characters. It's not like you say, I believe in King Jesus, ah, is the rest of your life. That's not the reality for our lives. The Bible meets us in the ups and downs of our complexity. You see, Jonah's prayer feels a bit empty once we know the whole story, but don't we do the same thing? Like maybe Jonah's prayer is 12% accurate here, it's 12% true, but it's 88% mixed with idolatry and, and pride and, and selfishness and false-heartedness and fronting by Jonah, right? Saying things but not believing those things, and yet God responds to him anyway. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Because your prayers are probably about 12% accurate and about 88% capping, and yet God responds to you anyway. Doesn't he? See, rather than getting frustrated at Jonah, we can actually begin to identify with Jonah and realize we're a lot more like Jonah than we would want our hearts to believe, and yet still God is faithful, and yet still God interacts with us. Our prayers are maybe only 12% genuine, yet God comes down and interacts with us anyway. Like Jonah, most of us when we're praying, we probably think we're being really, really sincere, right? But then later we get our true heart. Like we in our devotional time be thinking we straight godly, got the Bible out, your journal, the latte art sitting right above the Bible. Never mind, it took you longer to post it on IG than it did what you actually spent in God's word, but hey, we feeling ourselves, right? And then, 50 minutes later, we go do the very sin that we just read not to do. Ain't you capping at that point? Like, aren't you fronting there? Aren't you not living in the reality of what happens? See, you feel genuine when you're in the moment, and then you go and you do the very same thing, and yet God doesn't forsake you. He pours out his covenantal love towards you. This is the reality of what we see in Jonah. Even though there is a lot of genuineness here, we know the reality of Jonah's heart. So as we look backwards, we say, man, there wasn't true heart transformation fully, and yet God was still interacting with him. We know the reality of our hearts that we're about to leave church today, go home and sin, and yet God is still willing to interact with us. 
He doesn't require perfection. He requires faith and trust. And as we believe in God and entrust ourselves to God, he will do the work of making us like his son. You see, he meets you in your 12%. And he takes that 12% and turns it to 13% genuine. And he takes that 13% and turns it into 24%. And he takes that 24% and he turns it into 90%. And he keeps working on you until you are the exact representation and image of Christ. Come on now, there was not enough amens or hallelujahs there. Either you don't believe that your heart is as dark as it actually is, or that needs to be good news to you, family of God. That God is working on you. He's not giving up on you. You might be 2% genuine. That's all God needs. It takes the faith of a mustard seed. He'll take that and move mountains with it, y'all. It just takes 1%, a fraction of percent. As we entrust ourselves to God, God meets us in that moment, and he begins to make us like his son. That is good news, family. That is good news. Like, when I first got saved, your boy was a mess. Like, I was still serial dating women, left and right. I was still scrapping, at least on a weekly basis. That means fighting for my suburban culture friends, okay? <laughs> on a weekly basis, somebody was like, amen, thank you, I missed it. <laughs> I saw you, <laughs> right? Like, I felt genuine. In fact, sometimes I felt more genuine then than I even do now, y'all. But God took that little tiny bit of what I truly did believe as I was trying to give myself to God and he started working on me and he started moving in my life. In fact, he still allowed me to be used by him just like he'll allow Jonah to be used by him in chapter three, even though God still has work to do in chapter four. God is still working on us. We can entrust ourselves to him. If we come to God by faith, he wants to move in us. God is working with all of our messiness, y'all. He can take that fraction and turn it into a mountain. This story is less about Jonah's rebellion and it's more about God's faithfulness. If we focus on the whale, we miss sight on the miraculous God. If we focus on Jonah, we miss sight on the faithful God. You see, as Jonah is falling in his sin, God's faithfulness catches him in that falling. God is faithful even when we are faithless, for he cannot deny himself. Jonah, though he's missing his own idolatry, will still be worked on by God. You see, it's really easy for us to apply the gospel to ourselves when we need it, and yet withhold that very same grace that we receive to others when they need it. That's what Jonah was doing. He applied the gospel to himself, but he was not willing to give that gospel to others, and yet God was willing to work with him still. We're more like Jonah than we'd like to admit it, but if we admit it, we'll find God's faithfulness just like Jonah did. In fact, we'll be quicker to turn toward God, like salvation belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? That's what Jonah said. Jonah's right about that. That means your salvation, your deliverance, your looking more like Jesus, that belongs to the Lord. And we must entrust ourselves to him to allow him to begin to do that work. And we have this, y'all, because of our King Jesus, because of our beautiful King, who Jonah is representing throughout this whole passage. You see, Jesus also prayed the Psalms in anguish, just like Jonah did. When Jesus was beginning to face the consequences of sin, Jesus began to pray the Psalms out to God, just as Jonah did. 
We see a very clear similarity here. Jesus prayed to the Father when he was drowning in the depths of sin, yet not his own sin, the sin of others. And yet Jesus is still seeking the Father's face as he is interacting with that sin, as he's beginning to face God's wrath and judgment toward it. Jesus is our ultimate example of how we can go to God in prayer when there is rebellion around us. You see, Jesus never rebelled, but he was taking on your rebellion. And yet Jesus went to the Father anyway. And yet in so many ways, Jesus is the exact opposite of Jonah here. Jonah is the anti-prophetic uh, picture of Jesus in a lot of ways. You see, where Jonah was mainly praying for himself in times of trouble, as we see through the pronouns here, Jesus in John chapter 17 is mainly praying for others. In fact, he prays for others four times as much as he prays for himself. And so we see Jesus literally still thinking about others, even in the midst of his own suffering. While Jonah was in the tomb of the fish, Sheol as he called it, while Jonah felt dead for three days because of his own rebellion, Jesus was in the tomb for three days because of our rebellion. Jesus went in there willingly. Jonah had to be delivered. Jesus walked into it to deliver us. You see, Jonah is the opposite in a lot of ways. And the fish, what happened is it vomited Jonah out in a state of humility, but Jesus walked out of that grave in a state of triumph. The exact opposite of that. Jonah was shamed out of the fish. Jesus was glorified out of the tomb. Why? Because Jesus' work was perfect, and when he said it is finished on the cross, it was finished. Jesus is the good God that is not like Jonah, but can respond to God and goes to God and trusts himself to God, and God delivers Jesus just like God delivered Jonah. And so we see the parallels here. Jesus' resurrection is this beautiful uh, anti-type of Jonah in a lot of ways. They both spent three days in the tomb, but one came out glorious because he's the true and living God. He's the God that can save and deliver because those who pay regard to vain idols actually do forsake their chance of covenantal love. And yet Jesus paid for that idol worship and that idolatry. Jesus took it upon himself and gave us God's righteousness. You see, all of us should be forsook. None of us should be able to find the covenantal love of God, the steadfast love of God. All of us should be forsaken by God, and yet Jesus was forsaken so that we who should be rejected may now find life in Christ. You see, Jonah should have been rejected here, but God is able to forgive him because Jonah's sins are placed on Jesus, and Jesus his righteousness is placed on Jonah. God sees Jonah not as 12% genuine, as 100% genuine, because he's looking at him in the image of his son, just like he does for you if you believe. This is good news. This is good news, because we should not be able to go to God in prayer, and yet you have direct access into the throne room of grace. You can know that your father will turn his ear to you, because when Jesus cried out, the father's face turned from his son. You see, it should be turning from you, but it turned from his son that you might have the ear of God forever. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is the one that Jonah is even trying to point us toward without even meaning to. Jesus is literally who our souls need even when our prayers are all over the place. And so in light of this, in light of what God has done, we can now come to God with a sincere heart. We can know that God will hear us if we are believers in Jesus because we have Jesus' righteousness. So are you going to God in prayer? 
In moments of sheer distress, are you looking to God, knowing that God will answer you? If you feel far from God, are you coming back to God, knowing that he will accept you? Because Jesus was far from God on the cross, that you who are far may now be brought close, if you but believe. If you turn toward God, and if you are a believer, are you turning toward God on a consistent basis? Are you wanting God to change your heart? Even where your heart is a lot like Jonah's, do you believe that if you entrust yourself to God over and over and over again, he'll take that 12% and turn you into the exact representation of Christ because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Not might, he will bring it to completion. At the day of Christ Jesus, for those of us who believe, God is a faithful God who pursues. Is this good news to your heart, family of God? That he's faithful. He pursues you in your rebellion. My gosh, thank you, Lord. He pursues us in our rebellion. Y'all, just because I'm a pastor don't mean I ain't got a wicked, rebellious heart. It's rebellious. And if not for the grace of God, I would be in the depths of the sea, drowning in my own sin. Yet God is faithful. Your heart, it's all over the place, and yet God is faithful. Do you believe this? I pray that we would be a church that would seek God, that we would be a church that would take our 12% and lay it down at the altar, knowing that God is faithful to take that and to turn it into true, genuine faith. I also pray that we would be a church that's patient with those who are in that 12%. That just because God has done a little bit more work in our life, we wouldn't look upon them in judgment just because they're not where we may be in the faith. That's what Jonah was doing. I don't want to be like Jonah. I want to be the image of Christ here who is patient, who takes the small fractions of faith and begins to explode them into true, genuine faith that they may be used by the Son Listen, if you are wrestling, if you feel like, man, all I got is 0.001%, that's enough. God's grace is way stronger than your sin. God can work with that. If you give yourself to him, he can use that. And you have a home here. I want to tell you that. If you've been running for a while, you have a home. We'll accept you in your sloppiness and messiness. And we may be sloppy and messy too. Don't be tripping, okay? We ain't the perfect representation of Christ, but I long to be a church that looks like that more and more. Do you see the faithfulness of God? Do you entrust yourself to it, family? This is your deliverance. This is your salvation. This is what will help you through those times of distress or rebellion. Both of them, God will meet you in if you turn to him. Amen? I love you guys. Let's pray. God, thank you for being patient. You're patient, you're patient, you're patient with us. God, I pray for those in here who may not know you. Maybe they feel far from you. Maybe they are far from you. Maybe they feel like they've been in rebellion, not even sure why they showed up at church today, and all of a sudden we're talking about this. Maybe that's your very pursuit. God, I pray that even today, none of us would walk out of here rejecting your steadfast love. Friend, today, no matter where you are in your rebellion, if you but give yourself to God, if you say, God, I trust you, he will meet you in it, you may not even really know what that fully means. <laughs> Jonah didn't get it, and yet God met him in it. If you say, Jesus, I want you in my life, I want this relationship with you, he will meet you there, family. God, thank you for meeting us there. 
You are very, very, very good to us. God, for those of us who today, maybe we realize we've hit rock bottom, we really need a whale to come deliver us, will you deliver us, Jesus? For those of us who are still holding on to this judgmental tendency and this self-righteousness, would we lay that down at the altar and love others? Would we love like you did, Jesus? Make us more like you, Christ. Pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.